Welcome to the Watchman Radio Hour, coming to you from Portland, Oregon, here in the beautiful Northwest. This is David Schultz, your announcer. The Watchman Radio Hour is a production of Watchman Radio Ministries International, an evangelistic ministry reaching out to the peoples of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now here's our speaker, Alex Dotson, to bring you this week's message from God's Word. Over and over again, sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament for the sins of the people. None of these sacrifices could actually take away their sins. They only pointed to a sacrifice that would one day actually take those sins away. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 14, we read these words, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Passover was a picture of Christ as the Lamb of God. In Exodus 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day to this, of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, 
your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, and on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. All of this pointed to Christ, for he is our Passover lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In John 1, 29, John the Baptist saw Jesus, and it says, As he was looking at him, that Jesus came, as Jesus came toward him, he said, Look! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have you looked to the Lamb of God and put your trust in Him? I invite you to do that right now. Don't wait a minute longer. Now is the time. Jesus is our Passover. You need Him. Look to Him now. Today we're going to look at Isaiah 53 and verses 7, 8, and 9. And this is what it says. Let us hear the word of God. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Bible that you have given to us. We thank you that it's your infallible word and that we can put our full confidence in everything that it says. And as we come today to study your word, we pray that you would send forth your Holy Spirit in great power. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now let us see today that Jesus was offered as a lamb for our sins. Today we see this wonderful prophecy about the death of Jesus on the cross, written hundreds of years before the event took place. He is the true Lamb of God, and it is to Him that we must look for salvation. He is the only Savior. The cross is the only remedy for sin. He is the Savior of the world. You must look to Him. Now let us see in the first place today that He humbled Himself. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet He did not open His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her sharers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus was humble and patient as he went to the cross. In Philippians 2.8 it says, In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The old Geneva Bible note on this verse says, But willingly and patiently, obeyed his father's appointment. He did not open his mouth. 
He did not complain. He was obedient to the death of the cross. J.A. Alexander of Old Princeton wrote the repetition of the same words at the end. He will not open his mouth. So far from being even a rhetorical defect is highly graphic and impressive. And then it says he was like a lamb. First Peter 2.23 says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. In First Peter 1.18 and 19, it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And again, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus humbled himself. He became like a lamb being led to the slaughter without opening his mouth, or like a sheep who remains silent before its shearers. E.J. Young, in commenting on this passage, says, As men shear the lamb, it stands dumb. Possibly the mention of a lamb reflects upon the sacrificial lamb of Exodus 12:3 in the Passover. And John the Baptist, in designating our Lord the Lamb of God, based his language upon this present verse. It is the patience of the lamb that is here stressed. And so the female sheep, the ewe, is mentioned as silent before her shearers. Colin Dalich on this passage write all the references in the New Testament to the Lamb of God with which the corresponding allusions to the Passover are interwoven spring from this passage in the book of Isaiah. And Matthew Poole wrote, Yet he opened not his mouth. He neither murmured against God for causing him to suffer for other men's sins, nor reviled men for punishing him without cause, nor used apologies or endeavors to save his own life, but willingly and patiently accepted of the punishment of our iniquity. The words, is dumb, bears the loss of its fleece or life without any such clamor or resistance as other creatures use in such cases. John Calvin, the great reformer, wrote, As a lamb shall he be led to the slaughter. We are here exhorted to patience and meekness, that following the example of Christ, we may be ready to endure reproaches and cruel assaults, distress and torture. In this sense, Peter quotes this passage, showing that we ought to become like Christ our head that we may imitate his patience and submissiveness. In the word lamb, there is probably an allusion to the sacrifice under the law, and in this sense he is elsewhere called the Lamb of God. He was like a sheep being shorn. He did not resist. He was dumb before his shearer. He didn't say a word. He submitted himself to God the Father. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, it says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus willingly submitted himself to go to the cross and die for our sins. He did not resist. He went on your behalf. Now, let me say to you, would you submit yourself to him 
and receive this great salvation. Come to Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior today. Now let us see in the second place that he would be rewarded. Verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, or from oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was taken away after his death. Now there are two interpretations of this passage. The first describes his being taken away to death. It's reflected in what's written in Acts 8.32 from the Septuagint, which the uh, Ethiopian eunuch uh, read. It says, In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. But the second interpretation describes his being rewarded and taken away from the punishment and exalted to heaven. J.A. Alexander of Old Princeton wrote, Most of the older writers understand these words as descriptive of his exaltation from distress and judgment he was freed or taken up to heaven. And Matthew Poole, the old Puritan, wrote, And so the words may be rendered, He was taken up from prison and from judgment from all the sufferings and punishments inflicted upon him, either by the unrighteous judgment of men or by the just judgment of God, punishing him for those sins which he had voluntarily taken upon himself, or which is the same thing from the sentence of condemnation and all the effects of it. For in this sense, judgment is very commonly taken both in Scripture and other authors. Matthew Henry writes, The consequence of this to Christ was his resurrection and advancement to perpetual honor. This makes the offense of the cross perfectly to cease. He yielded himself to die as a sacrifice, as a lamb, and to make it evident that the sacrifice he ordered of himself was accepted, we are told here, that he was discharged. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Nietzsche Young wrote, From the midst of his sufferings he was taken away by death. And John Calvin, the great reformer, commented on this passage. He says, The prophet therefore declared that he was taken away. That is, he was rescued from prison and judgment or condemnation, and afterwards was exalted to the highest rank of honor, that no one might think that he was overwhelmed or swallowed up by that terrible and shameful kind of death. For undoubtedly he was victorious even in the midst of death and triumphed for, over his enemies. And he was so judged that now he has been appointed to be judge of all as was publicly manifested by his resurrection. The same order is followed by the prophet as by Paul, who after having declared that Christ was abased even to the cross, adds that on this account he was exalted to the very highest honor and that there was given him a name to which all things, both in heaven and on earth, must render obedience and bend the knee. Now, both interpretations are true. He was taken away to suffer for our sins on the cross, but he was also taken away from the suffering and exalted to heaven. I tend to like the second interpretation as the older commentators saw it. This seems to fit well with Philippians 2, 9 through 11, where it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He died to save many. Again, there are two interpretations of the second phrase. Acts 8.33 says, In his humiliation he was deprived of justice, and who can speak of his descendants? Did he have any descendants? He was taken away to suffer and die and would have no descendants. That's the first interpretation. The second interpretation is that he would have many descendants, that is, spiritual descendants. Matthew Pooh wrote his posterity, or here we read descendants, and so this word is unquestionably used in Genesis fifteen sixteen, in Exodus 25, in Deuteronomy 23, 2, 3, and 8, and in many other places. And so the sense of the place is this, that Christ's death shall not be unfruitful, and that when he is raised from the dead, he shall have a spiritual seed, as is promised. Verse, in verse 10, a numberless multitude of those who shall believe in him and be regenerated and adopted by him into the number of his children and of the children of God. In John one twelve it says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. In Hebrews 2.10 it says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author about of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2.13 says, And again I will put my trust in him. And again it says, Here am I and the children that God has given me. In Hebrews 2.14 it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Matthew Henry writes, some, by his generation or his descendants, understand his spiritual seed. Who can count the vast numbers of converts that shall by the gospel be begotten to him, like the dew of the morning? Of this generation of his, let us pray, as Moses did for Israel. The Lord God of our fathers, make them as thousand times so many more as they are and bless them as he has promised them. Again, the second interpretation fits well as the older commentators saw it. Jesus died that many would be saved, and through his death he would have many children. That includes you if you truly trust in him as your Lord and Savior. Would you be a child of God, then come to Christ. Now let us see in the third place today that he died for our sins. Verses 8 and 9, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He died for our sins, not his. He was for us. It was for us that he died. Matthew Pooh wrote, For the transgression of my people was he stricken. 
That is repeated again as it was as it should be to prevent men's mistakes about and stumbling at the death of Christ and assure them that Christ did not die for his own sins, but only for the sins and salvation of his people. John Calvin writes for the transgression of my people. He again repeats that the wound was inflicted on him for the sins of the people, and the object is that we may diligently consider that he it was for our sake and not for his own that he suffered, for he bore the punishment which we must have endured. If he had not offered this atonement, we ought to perceive in ourselves that guilt of which he bore the accusation. And punishment, having offered himself in our name to the Father, that by his condemnation we may be set free. John Gill writes, The punishment of the sins of his people was exacted of him, and he submitted to bear it, and he did bear it in his own body on the tree. This clearly expresses the doctrine of Christ's satisfaction. He died between two thieves, but he was buried in a rich man's tomb. E.J. Young wrote, What was to be given to the servant by men was dishonor and disgrace. What God would give him was honor in his burial. Again, the text says he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death. E.J. Young again writes, What was to be given to the servant by men was dishonor and disgrace, but God would give him honor in his burial. He goes on to write, The servant was given an honorable burial after his dishonorable death because of his perfect innocence. Inasmuch, therefore, as he had not acted like his criminal enemies, he would not receive disgraceful burial with them, but honorable burial with the rich. In Matthew 27, verse 57, it says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Colin Dalich write, and if we reflect that the Jewish rulers would have given to Jesus the same dishonorable burial as the two thieves, but that the Roman authorities handed over the body to Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, who placed him, who placed his body in the sepulchre in his own garden. We see an agreement at once between the gospel history and the prophet's words, which could only be the work of the God of both, the prophecy and its fulfillment inasmuch as no suspicion could possibly arise of there having been any human design of bringing the former into conformity with the latter. Kyle and Dalich also write he was to have lain where the bodies of criminals lie, but he was really laved in a grave that was intended for the corpse of a rich man. John Gill writes, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. These words are generally supposed to refer to a fact that was afterwards done, that Christ who died with wicked men, as if himself he himself had been one, was buried in a rich man's grave. He was the innocent one, 
though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The innocent one died for the guilty. He was a lamb without blemish. He laid down his life for sinners, though he was not one. Kyle and Dalich write the reason why the servant of God received such honorable treatment immediately after his ignominious martyrdom was to be found in his freedom from sin, in the fact that he had done no wrong, and there was no deceit in his mouth. John Calvin wrote, neither was there deceit in his mouth. In two words, he describes the perfect innocence of Christ, namely that he never offended either in deed or in word. That this cannot be said of any mortal man is universally acknowledged, and hence it follows that it applies to Christ alone. We are sinners. He was sinless. We have gone astray. He was without sin. Today, your sins can be wiped away through his death on the cross. His blood can cleanse your sins. He was innocent. He was the innocent one who took your sins upon himself and paid the penalty for them. Though the invitation is to you today to come to Christ now and be forgiven of your great sins, only he can do that. Come to Jesus now and be saved. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Come to Christ now. Don't wait a minute longer. Come and receive him as your Lord and your Savior. Pray this prayer with me right now. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that you went to the cross as an innocent lamb to die for my sins, to take my sins upon yourself. And I now accept you as my Lord and my Savior. Help me to follow you always. Our Father in heaven, whoever has prayed that prayer today, we pray that you would grant them the assurance of their salvation, that you would fill them with your Spirit and help them to follow you always in all of their life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross. We thank you for going to the cross as an innocent lamb to lay down your life for our sins. And we thank you for the gospel that tells us that those who put their trust in Christ will be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Passover lamb. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We hope this week's broadcast has been a blessing to you. If you have any questions about Mr. Dodson's message, please write us. You may email us at info at watchmanradio.org. Our mailing address is Watchman Radio Ministries International, Post Office Box 13251, Portland, Oregon, 97213. That's Watchman Radio Ministries International, Post Office Box 13251, Portland, Oregon, 97213. You may listen to this broadcast at any time on the Internet at www.oneplace.com. In the list of ministries, just select the Watchman Radio Hour. This week's program and previous programs are always available there for listening. Our web address is www.watchmanradio.org. That's W-A-T-C-H-M-E-N radio dot org. www.watchmanradio.org.